Okay, everyone, thank you very much for coming along uh, to this afternoon's seminar, uh, Tuesday of week five uh, in our series. Um, this is part of a, a knowledge exchange which has been carried out uh, by the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Group in conjunction with King's College London and Swiss Peace and uh, funded by the ESRC, uh, where we're looking at ways of knowing after an atrocity. Um, and in particular the methodologies which are employed by, uh, by traditional justice academics and practitioners in, in determining how we know um, an atrocity has occurred and, and how we know the details about those atrocities. Um, and it's with, with that that I um, would like to introduce our speaker this afternoon, Simon Robins. Um, Simon uh, has a PhD from the University of York um, and is currently practicing as a practitioner in the field of, of transitional justice. He's done some consultancies for um, many of the, the major transitional justice groups in the International Centre for Transitional Justice, International Security uh, Studies, um, Save the Children, um, and he's worked on a number of different countries around the world. Um, Nepal, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Kenya, um, uh, just trying to think, Burundi, um, and, and a few other countries which don't quite come to mind at the moment, Simon might tell us later. Um, and Simon's been doing some really fantastic work of late on victim-centric approaches to transitional justice. Um, and it's with that that he's going to be a, speaking to us on this afternoon. Uh, Simon was fortunate enough to receive the 2012 Cedric Smith Prize uh, for Peace or Conflict. And the judges in that competition uh, described his work as being methodologically sophisticated and innovative. Um, and so we are really uh, very, very proud and very fortunate to have Simon speaking with us this afternoon. He'll be addressing us uh, on the topic of participatory approaches to transitional justice in Nepal. So please make Simon very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and thanks to everyone for coming. It's, uh, it's five o'clock in the evening and I'm, I'm impressed, especially given the competition I know from other seminars. I would have gone to another one if I wasn't <laughs> um, So it's good to see you. Thank you. Um, and, and maybe I'll start with a confession. I'm, I'm a humanitarian. I'm not an academic. And uh, the research I'm going to discuss um, grew from my work with victims during and after conflict, mostly with the, the Red Cross movement. So my motivation for working in these contexts with these affected populations is, is to reduce human suffering. And that's what's really driven um, my victim-centered approach in contrast to many of the more legally driven uh, approaches that drive transitional justice approaches to addressing legacies of violence. So I came across the discourse of transitional justice. I said, oh, I'm interested in working with victims to you know, address the issues they have. And they said, oh, you're doing transitional justice. So I come to it very much as someone you know, who, who came through a desire to work with victims uh, and confronted transitional justice as this dominant lens through which legacies of violence were examined and, and much of my work has become a comment or a critique of contemporary approaches and I see myself very much sort of trying to push the practice into a particular direction. And today I'm trying to engage with the, the ways of knowing after atrocity theme um, through understanding what participation means in transitional justice, in particular with regard to the participation of the conflict affected and with an emphasis on, on work I've been doing in Nepal. Um, disempowerment is a major impact of victimhood, clearly, but it's also a cause in Nepal, as in many other places, conflict preferentially targeted the marginalised. 
So how can approaches to a violent past empower those most impacted by the violence of conflict? And this drives my title, the idea that you can transcend victimhood by somehow enabling the agency of victims. And I'll try and interrogate that by emphasising some methodological approaches which are quite novel in transitional justice, even if they have some lineage elsewhere. And I'll be interrogating the idea that many transitional justice processes claim to be victim-centred. I want to ask what that means. Um, I believe there are moral reasons to prioritise the needs of victims after conflict, but also very practical ones. I won't go into those, but I think addressing the impact of conflict and the causes of conflict means engaging with the issues that victims have. There is an emerging, a critical turn in transitional justice somehow, and there's some very theoretical literature on peace building and approaches to justice after conflict um, as a common critique of transitional justice as an elite and top-down process that I will echo. Um, a lot written on local peace building and hybridity, but there are few efforts to actually instantiate what I might call emancipatory approaches in practice, and that's what I'm trying to do here. And I'll be talking about participation in, in two different areas. One is to understand how the violence of conflict and its impact is perceived, and so this is participation in research as well as potentially in how a, a transitional justice process could collect information. And the second will be how a transitional justice process can itself be participatory and engage victims in the mechanisms. Um, and I will be discussing a particular class of victim that's, that's been a thread in my work for several years now, which is the families of those persons missing and disappeared in conflict. Um, disappearance is one of the most impacting violations. I mean, many people would say more so than killing, uh, from which it's possible to move on. The pain of disappearance is one that's always there because there is no answer. Um, so it challenges uh, the issues of truth and justice that transitional justice most claims to, to address. Um, disappearance has impacts that are emotional, psychological, economic and social. And I will critique transitional justice practice in its failure to consider those particular impacts. Um, I mean, my engagement in Nepal began when I was working with the International Committee of the Red Cross during the conflict, visiting places of detention to try and prevent people from becoming missing during a conflict. So my research emerged from that engagement as a natural way um, to, to think about addressing the issue of people who were still missing once the conflict ended. I've also done uh, similar work in other contexts, notably in, in East Timor, Timor-Leste, and um, the work in both Nepal and Timor is the uh, subject of a book that was just published last week. I have some flyers if anyone's interested. It's terribly expensive, but uh, you can order it for your library, perhaps. Um, so to begin, I'd like to discuss the context of Nepal. This will be rather brief, necessarily, because we don't have much time. Um, uh, Nepal's conflict was, was a response to a, a society that had become or had always been extremely exclusive on the basis of ethnicity, caste and gender, with uh, a majority of Nepal's population excluded from much of economic, social and political life. Um, it's also the second poorest country in Asia after Afghanistan, um, with most of the population scratching a living as uh, subsistence farmers. So the Nepali state traditionally had been constructed by elites very much in their own image. And Nepali was a Brahmin or maybe a Chetri from the hills. And that was how Nepali identity was understood, which had the effect of excluding uh, the indigenous people, the Danjati, uh, the Madeshis, people of Indian origin from the plains, as well as, as lower caste people. 
and in many of the, the many cultures of Nepal, women were also um, excluded. Um, because of this history of exclusion and the fact that Nepal is a low-income state, I claim that it's a rather typical context of where transitional justice is practiced today. It's increasingly been something that's done in the global south. So I hope this is an example from which we can generalize. Nepal's conflict emerged from this long tradition of exclusion as a Maoist insurgency. There had been a long tradition of Marxist parties in Nepal. And one party, which was initially very small when the, the, it, it initiated the People's War, as it called it, in uh, 1996, and 10 years later it had de facto control over a large fraction of the country, particularly the rural areas. The war itself was largely fought in the rural areas, and because the Maoists had been very successful in mobilizing the marginalized, many of their cadres were indigenous people, lower castes and other minorities. They claimed, for instance, that 40% of the People's Liberation Army uh, was female which for such a, a patriarchal culture is extremely impressive. Um, the conflict ended in 2006 um, after the king had, uh, had assumed um, absolute power, removed parliament. Um, there was an alliance between the constitutional parties with the help of India, with the Maoists, that overturned the king's absolute power and ultimately led to uh, the removal of the king and a, a declaration of a republic. Um, during the conflict, disappearances were largely perpetrated by state forces, notably by, by the Royal Nepal Army, as an explicit strategy of conflict, um, although the Maoists also made people go missing. And about six years after the end of the conflict, there's something like um, 1,500 people still unaccounted for. Um, this is a, a, a picture of a female... Uh, cadres of the, of the PLA during the conflict. Um, that's an example of the, the, the people who are missing. This is uh, actually um, a photo produced by the Maoists as essentially a propaganda exercise, valorizing people they, they call the martyrs. So this is a teenage girl um, from Bardia, uh, a Terai district in the plains in the, in the Midwest of Nepal, who was taken by, by the Nepal army. And uh, still, her family still has no news of her. And many families treasure these sort of objects because they don't have any other recognition or, or acknowledgement of them. Of them. Um, this is a teenage girl. Most of the missing are men. More than 90% of the people missing are men. Um, because a majority of those missing are indigenous, rural, very often from rural societies. The subjects of, of my research are usually women from those communities. So, for instance, this is a woman from the Taru community from Bardia, um, rural, illiterate, living in a traditional, highly patriarchal society. They're the people who, who I've been studying. Um, the current status of the transitional justice process in Nepal, if it can be called that, is that the, the peace process is frozen. Um, a constituent assembly was established after, after the, the peace agreement. Elections were held to which the Maoists became the largest party, but that has been disbanded, having failed to write a constitution. Um, and there's still uh, a political stalemate somehow with some of the biggest issues, political issues unresolved between the Maoists and, and the other parties. Um, 
when the peace, comprehensive peace agreement was signed in, in 1996, under international pressure, a commitment was made to transitional justice to include a commitment to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and a Disappearance Commission, the latter uh, a demand of the Maoists because they saw their people, their cadres, as largely victims of disappearance. It's not clear that the parties who committed themselves to that transitional justice agenda even knew what they were committing themselves to. And in practice, uh, since the end of conflict, all the parties, including the Maoists, are committed to impunity and avoiding any significant transitional justice process. So. Uh, for the last five or six years in Kathmandu, the discussion of transitional justice has been a very sterile standoff between politicians with no interest in pursuing the agenda, for whom impunity in the business of politics and the business of putting money in their pockets has dominated, and a Kathmandu-based human rights community whose principal agenda is prosecutorial, demanding justice, reflecting somehow the international judicial project that transitional justice has become. Victims' voices are really barely heard in this process. They're as marginalised by this discussion as they have been traditionally by, by the state and its institutions. And this is somehow what drives my, my interest in investigating participatory processes. Um, transitional justice claims to be an effort to respond to the needs of societies emerging from conflict. Um, but it's become driven by a very normative understanding about what's required. And the assumption is that liberal democracy is the end point of this process. And that's something that, that, that comes with that agenda. So whilst it presents itself as a technical and apolitical approach to transition, I would contend that it's actually very political and has globalised with a range of both liberal and neoliberal tenets. And this drives a very prescriptive, very mimetic approach in which transitional justice is understood as a set of institutions, trials, truth commissions, perhaps reparations procedures that a state simply rolls out according to an international model. <clears throat> and often contextual elements are largely, largely absent from these processes. There's a dominance of legalism. The law is seen as the solution to many of the legacies of violence. And this gives rise to a thin institutionalized transitional justice, which doesn't often have great relevance for the people most affected by violations. The analysis of such an approach is perpetrator and violation-centered, not victim-centered. Um, and the legal lens somehow imposes a single dominant approach that seems to claim unique importance to the society as a whole, despite the massive diversity of ways in which conflict is experienced, the idea that the judicial process can address all of those is, is, is somehow ridiculous. Um, it also implies that a conflict that was born of exclusion and unequal distribution of power and resources can be addressed by an institutional process in the capital. Um, I mean, my experience of seeing how human rights practice works in Nepal is that it's become very much an elite discourse. Um, I mean, rights have to compete with other normative frameworks in the context where they're articulated in various political agendas. And there's actually a disjuncture between a universalist conception of human rights and the local scale where social actors use these concepts. And in Nepal, the practice of human rights is as exclusionary as the society as a whole. Agendas are set by elites who have access to that global discourse defining a transitional justice agenda that's largely remote from victims in terms of class, ethnicity, caste, education, even language. Um, so the people most in need of human rights discourse have least access to it. Most, most people I work with had no idea what rights were or how they could claim them. 
And the result of this is that the people who articulate rights discourse focus on a narrow legalism, ignoring social and economic rights, which might threaten the structures that have ensured those people are in a superior position. Um, the definition of a violation of rights privileges particular forms of violence. So acts of physical violence are considered within the remit of transitional justice, but not the structural violence of economic and social rights violations. And I mean, the, 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 the most extreme example I've seen is um, in Bardia, Midwest Nepal, um, the Maoists displaced landlords who are mostly um, hill Brahmins who had, who had essentially stolen land from the indigenous people over the previous half a century or so. Um, the Maoists seized that land, redistributed it, not in a particularly fair way to be honest, but redistributed it to, to local landless people and displaced landlords. Um, one intervention of the international community was to offer legal advice to the landlords so they could get their land back, whereas the people of the community believed that the power relations had been irrevocably changed by the conflict. So property rights were prioritised over the social and economic rights of those people who'd been denied a livelihood for, for, for decades. So I see a legalistic transitional justice as one that translates political questions into rather narrowly framed legal questions. It makes no effort to undress unequal social relations that led to conflict and appears to maintain and enforce the most fundamental power relations within Nepali society. Um, I was at a conference, a big American political science conference in April, and during one transitional justice session the chair said how important it was to keep politics out of transitional justice and I think it should be understood that all transitional justice is politics and it always has been and what I'm trying to ask is what sort of politics is it? Um, at the heart of my critique of transitional just pro justice process, and it's a common critique now, um, is its distance from the everyday lives of those most affected by violence. Um, how can a process change a society if it's divorced from the, the needs of the victims of violence? And do we even know what the impacts of that violence are? So this makes me put empiricism at the heart of efforts to address legacies of violence. You can challenge prescription and normativity and the idea that you can do the same thing everywhere by understanding the impacts of violence, the changes it's wrought on individuals and communities. And you can challenge the politics of location that sees transitional justice as metropolitan, driven by and in capitals, and a liberal proceduralism that sees institutions of the state as the only place where you can find solutions. So I want to seek an evidence-based approach driven by what ordinary people seek of a post-conflict dispensation. So moving on to understand how a participatory research approach can help this. Um, conventional wisdom is that right, since rights are claimed, they empower victims. But where rights are not knowing, known, privileging, privileging rights discourse actually does the opposite. It empowers those who have access to the discourse, who are the elites. Um, Ordinary people in Nepal articulate needs. I asked a lot of people uh, what they understood by rights, and most people, had, ordinary people in villages, have no idea at all. So to privilege local understandings, to advance agency, I talk about needs. And one thing I'll do is use an empirical approach to compare priorities of victims with those of elites and internationals working in the, in the human rights industry. So 
I believe to understand the impacts of violence on victims, we need to engage with their everyday lives. We need what Geert's called a thick description, an anthropological approach in contrast to the thin legalistic understandings that drive contemporary transitional justice. And I think ethnography, emphasizing the local and particular in contrast to the universal, can do this. And a participatory ethnography can not only understand issues from the perspective of those most affected, but actually become a process of reflection and action carried out by and with local people. So it doesn't only acknowledge those perspectives, but they form the basis for the research. And it's a, it's a critically engaged research. Um, I was originally working with these communities during the conflict, after the conflict, and what I seek to do is, is create an exercise of knowledge production that advances the interests of victims. Um, based on the understanding that there's no such thing as human rights in the abstract. Rights are instantiated in a concrete situation, subject to the power relationships that exist that have to be understood in that context. And also that non-elites can be very important human rights theorists. You can learn a lot simply from understanding how people use rights, how they perceive rights. So my research unfolds in collaboration with victims' organisations. It's a participatory action research approach. Um, notably with district and national victims associations for families of the disappeared, exploiting the mutuality of interest of the researcher and the research. So I design the research together with victims groups. The subjects are not just generators of data, but they can actually steer the process. And the victims groups have a goal in producing an advocacy tool for their own work to inform the ongoing discussions over transitional justice. This is work I did um, that was published by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is simply a presentation of the needs of families of the missing in Nepal that actually had quite a big impact on trying to challenge the very legalistic prosecutorial uh, focus of, of the discussions. This is from three or four years ago. Um, so I produce a research instrument, a qualitative research instrument in collaboration with victims leaders and victims group members and they accompany me during interviews and I work together, this is again in Bardia, um, with this gentleman here is a local, uh, also missing a son um, who's a member of the national and the district victims groups and these are other families uh, I'm talking with. Um, the second stage was actually to train victims groups themselves to do qualitative research to try to understand their needs, to mobilise, to raise their voices. Um, I think this sort of approach hugely eases some of the ethical challenges of research with victims of conflict. Um, security issues, for example, are very well understood by local people on the ground, so you can make sure you don't compromise the safety of anybody. Research is mediated by peers of the research who are trusted, and people are able to talk freely. It's not just access, but it's... it's some access to, to what they really believe. Um, it's a route to accountability to the researched because the research is steered by goals that have been set by um, the subjects of the research. And it somehow addresses the asymmetry of research relations. An important foreign person comes up, issues of informed consent really don't come into it. But when you have a long-term relationship, with, with uh, somebody, you can have a process of, of almost iterative consent where your role and your relationship is increasingly better understood over an extended period of time. Um, working with people who've been victims of violence, there's always a risk of, of trauma. Um, what this approach does 
is ensure that structures exist in contexts where there's no professional help, where they have peer support. The victims group that provides the, uh, the mechanism for the research also provides within the community a support group for affected people. So, I mean, in the first part of the study, I met 160 families in 10 districts of Nepal and asked open questions about what response they sought to the disappearance of their loved one. Um, I mean, I, I will only talk here about uh, a very brief summary of the results. There, the report is in, available also in English online. There are some papers published. Here I'll be really just talking about the... Um, the summary of the results. So, for instance, the three priorities that families articulate are uh, an answer. Uh, they want truth, but they don't want the truth of a truth commission. They don't want the history of the conflict. They want to know what happened to their husband, son or father. Where is his body? Can we do the rituals for him? Um, a similar number emphasised economic support. Um, now, this is partly because losing sons, losing husbands, mostly at their most productive age, in a rural economy where people work in the fields, does impact your ability to feed your, your family, particularly women left heading households on their own. But it also reflects the fact that these people have always been poor. They were poor before the conflict, before they lost loved ones. So that's somehow an articulation that they want to see their poverty addressed. Um, rather few prioritised prosecutions, uh, even though that was the dominant agenda of the Kathmandu human rights community. Um, another interesting way to look at the data is to divide it between people in Kathmandu and people in Badia. I choose Badia because it's the most affected district, there's many victims, and it's also perhaps one of the most rural and marginalised districts that, that I worked in. And what's interesting is this reveals how dangerous it is to generalise about what victims want. You can see there's a difference between people in Kathmandu and people in Bardia, most particularly over the idea of prosecutions. For people in Bardia, it was simply something irrelevant. Law had always been an instrument of power used against them. They had no faith or interest in the law, understanding of the law. Um, so I conclude from this that when you engage victims with methodologies that allow their priorities to emerge, the agenda is very different from the transitional justice agenda. People are talking about social and economic rights, and for this particular class of victims, they're talking about an answer about disappeared loved ones. Um, I, I presented this many times to, in, in, in Kathmandu, and um, in one presentation I was discussing with quite a senior um, human rights activist in Nepal who on seeing this data said yes sometimes simple people don't know what they should want and this for me just demonstrates the, the, the normativity that leads the approach in Nepal and in many other places. Um, the other thing that you see in, in the discourse around transitional justice in Nepal is the marginalisation of social and economic rights. There hasn't been a single publication on social and economic rights around the transition by any, of, uh, by any human rights organisation in Kathmandu. Civil and political rights are always emphasised, denying the salience of the social and economic issues that actually drove the conflict. Addressing poverty is a prerequisite even for these families to campaign for their other rights. because. If you have to work to feed yourself, you certainly can't go to a meeting or go to the capital or wave a, wave a placard. So victims don't seek restitution. They don't seek a return to the poverty and marginalisation that led to them becoming victims. They seek a transformative justice that challenges the poverty and marginalisation that they've always lived in. And you can ask questions. What does this imply if we have a victim-centred 
process and we let victims drive what process we want. Does this mean we don't have trials, we don't have a truth commission, we just have a reparations process, or we have a process to address social exclusion? I mean, I won't answer those questions, but I think the data asks those. Um, victims, however, see that their agenda is political. Um, this is, I'm sorry, putting large chunks of text up isn't very helpful. Um, this is a statement from uh, the leader of one of the victims' groups in Bardia, who sees that the violations of their rights had a caste, or at least an ethnic basis, since they're indigenous people, primarily. Um, and he's claiming that human rights issues should be, should be addressed on a caste basis as well. So he draws a link between how they were treated historically, how they were treated during the conflict, and how they're treated today by the people leading transitional justice discussions in Kathmandu, who are typically hill Brahmins. Um, and this again emphasises the need for transformation. Um, one thing that, that surprised me, despite having worked with these communities for several years, was that for many women, particularly the wives of the disappeared, the greatest impacts were often social. Um, family structure is hierarchical. Many women's identity and status is gained through their relationship with a man. So a wife who will move in with her husband's family, if her husband is missing, her whole identity and status is put into question. She's resented by her family. She's often not fed properly. Her community will marginalise her. They're often subject to uh, sexual abuse. These impacts are completely invisible to the transitional justice discourse of the human rights agencies in Kathmandu, even though it was the biggest impact for most of the women I met in rural areas, and a direct result of the violation occurring in a society that's highly patriarchal. There are also many psychological and psychosocial impacts, and uh, one thing that the Red Cross did in response to, to my study was to initiate uh, psychosocial support programs for the, the wives and mothers of the disappeared throughout Nepal. Again, that's something that one doesn't see in, in the global uh, narrative of transitional justice. So to summarise the, the data of the study, what transitional justice offers in terms of truth and justice doesn't really resonate with what the victims in Nepal demanded. They seek an addressing of the violation both in terms of its impact and the social conditions that facilitated it and worsened its impact. So it demands an engagement with social and economic issues and with the power relations that underlay the conflict. And uh, at the moment, we see that these people's rights are somehow claimed on their behalf by human rights agencies, and they have no role in claiming them themselves. So that leads me to the second part of my talk, which is about participation in transitional justice. Um, extending the discussion from participation in research to the idea of participation in the transitional justice process itself. Um, so. Um, a lot of this work is based on a report that, that was launched last year um, in Nepal based on a participatory action research study done with the National Association of the Families of the Disappeared to understand and to support their mobilisation. And really this revolves around the understanding that agency is somehow important. Um, people's humanity is somehow dependent upon the doctrine of action and expanding agency is, is the practice of empowerment, um, the challenging of power relations which excludes certain categories of persons from playing particular roles. And agency in here refers to two distinct sets of power relations. One, who drives the transitional justice process? How can victims impact on a process that's being assembled in the capital? 
and the other one are victims everyday agencies which are constrained by power relations of gender, ethnicity and caste in their communities and shaped by the interaction of historic marginalisation and the impact of violence such as the stigma seen by the wives of the disappeared. So agency reveals a route to addressing victims' demand that focuses as much on the process as on goals. Empowerment's a process that begins in a victim's daily life long before it democratises a national process. Um, and agency empowerment are needed not just as a result of the impact of acts of violence but also to address marginalisation and social exclusion that made people vulnerable to such violence. Empowerment can potentially address the longer term structural violence that under underlies conflict. That's the vision somehow that, that underlies this work. It's not about transitional justice doing more, trying to address every problem in the state, but using the process of mobilisation to create a transitional justice process that doesn't just return victims to poverty and exclusion as a restitutive process does, but actually transforms the situation that led to conflict. And I think it's interesting to think about rights-based approaches because um, even though transitional justice is very much a rights-based discourse, rights-based approaches emphasise participation and transparency in a way that transitional justice doesn't. So maybe what I'm advocating for is a rights-based approach to transitional justice where participation is, is something that's absolutely integrated into it. Um, Mobilisation means mobilising victims groups. This is really barely discussed in the literature around transitional justice. There's some discussion of the Kulamani support group in South Africa, um, which had a similar constituency of the poor and the illiterate women um, that has become a broad social movement, not just addressing impacts of violations, but trying to empower the poor. Um, so let me now summarise the, the results of, of the study made with the, the victims group in the poor. Um, so there was a research agenda, but there was also an activist agenda to raise the profile of NEFAD, the National Network of Families of the Missing and Disappeared, and trying to interest donors who were much happier funding Kathmandu-based human rights agencies than working at the grassroots. And so this demonstrates the interweaving of a research and an activist agenda somehow. And what we did in three districts, the National Association worked with the district associations to understand their members' views. So it was the local district activists who did the research, working with their own membership, with the intention also of solidifying the district level. Um, it, first of all, the study confirmed the priorities from the previous study. Economic issues remain an overwhelming priority. And also that local mobilisation is most valuable for, for women creating solidarity and empowerment, particularly the wives and mothers of the disappeared. Um, families universally identified as victims and saw the victim identity as a route to making claims of the authorities. Women also believed that their gender worsened the impact of the violation. So whilst the violation is a violation of disappearance, it was magnified by the fact that their position in their community was problematic because of their gender. Um, this is a typical example of the sort of attitude women expressed. Um, suffering psychologically compelled to live in pain without hope. And this tells us that if we mobilise such victims, it can't just be around the violation of disappearance, it has to also be around the other impacts, such as the exclusion of gender. It's also important to understand that victims are never only victims. They live with, with the other legacies 
uh, legacies of other impacts potentially as severe as that of the conflict. But they also have resources within themselves, their families and their communities that can aid resilience and recovery. And we shouldn't think that there's a dichotomy between being an agent and being a victim. Victims very much saw victimhood and their identity as a victim as how they make claims of the state. So the challenge was to transform the victim identity into an empowered one that allowed them to make claims of the state. Um, women in particular said very positive things about the impact of coming together. The solidarity allowed them to challenge their marginalisation in their communities. Um, it was only when we met other families of those disappeared, we felt we had common problems, we knew we had the same pain. <clears throat> we formed this association, it helped us to meet friends having similar problems, then we organised the sit-ins. From that time onward, we felt courageous to fight for our cause. So people who are traditionally quite disempowered in their society, coming together as women around issues they shared was hugely empowering. Um, that's another quote. Um, that's, I think, quite, quite powerful. Um, so victims see mobilisation as something that can both advocate for the addressing of their needs at the Kathmandu level, but also provide support and solidarity in their communities. Uh, peer support, as I've said, was seen to hugely empower the most disempowered, particularly women, to make demands of families and communities that they were unable to alone. And I would claim that this is a transitional justice process. This is community-based organisations empowering people to confront and overcome the impacts of the legacies of violence. Mobilisation also, of course, has the capacity to create national organisations that can have representatives that can impact at a national political level. Um, one challenge, this is uh, again in Bardia, an organisation carrying a, a banner with the, uh, the photographs of, of the missing. Um, one challenge of mobilisation is the issue of representation. Um, who represents victims? Who presents their stories? Um, and what Kulamani in South Africa did as an organisation was refuse representation. They said only victims can represent victims. Um, and that's what drives the idea of mobilisation so that victims can raise their own voices. It's important not to romanticise the local. These local groups have hierarchies within them. Many of the leaders are men. In fact, they're almost exclusively led by men. Often they will be higher caste men or, or better educated men. So these issues remain even within victims groups. And trying to mobilise women was ex extremely difficult primarily because of their domestic tasks. They had to work, they had to feed their families, but also simply because they didn't have the confidence. So empowerment isn't simply a technical process. It's about education and building capacities. Um, and that makes it clear that for victims groups to play a role in transitional justice, there has to be a role for outsiders. How can outsiders support and fund and train such groups without imposing their own agendas, and that's a real challenge um, that's not really been met. Donors traditionally avoid, I mean CVC, this is the Conflict Victims Committee in Bardia has received essentially zero funding from donors, it's too much work. They don't speak English, they can't fill in the forms and the reports that, that donors demand, so they're much happier going to their usual recipients in Kathmandu. So I'm claiming that despite that, these victims groups represent grassroots transitional justice mechanisms. Um, for instance, 
these groups have been organising what they call social harmony discussions in some districts, bringing the community together to discuss the history of the conflict, to resolve issues that remain. Um, in Bardia, traditional Taru leaders have been helping women marginalised in their families because their husbands are missing separate from their families, ensuring an equitable distribution, for example, of, of the family wealth. Again, that for me is a direct addressing of an impact of the violation should be considered a transitional justice mechanism, even though it's completely invisible to national and international processes. Um, victims groups have also been successful in bringing victims together across the perpetrator divide. Uh, one man said the network, the victims network is reconciling us together, it's a peace and reconciliation process. So even though there's no national process, on the ground people are able to make dialogue across the perpetrator divide. Victims of both parties are able to sit together and talk. Um, as I said, I don't want to idealise such mobilisation. There are many challenges. Um, how can such mobilisation address broad discrimination, the social exclusion we're talking about, when mobilisation is around the identity as a member of the family of the disappeared? Um, how can you support such work when all those who fund it see it as actively against their interests? Um, so, uh, process in Nepal has been slow and there is some impact at the grassroots, but it, it's still a long way from having any sort of national impact. Um, so, uh, what I've tried to do is generalise this by discussing typologies of participation in transitional justice processes and contrasting a typical top-down process with the sort of processes I've been talking about. Um, so, I mean, this is based on work that goes back to the 70s around uh, social movements and empowerment. Um, I mean, this sort of... So, here we've got the form of participation. Here the function for those steering the process. Here the function for those who are participating in the process. And an example. So, I would say that... Well, okay, anybody who's ever been to a, a human rights meeting or transitional justice meeting in the capital will have seen that you, the victims are there, but they, they play no role. They're, required, they're asked to speak, to give their testimony, they will often cry, they will be very upset, they're listened to in silence. When they're finished, the meeting will resume and they will be ignored. Their, their attendance is often um, completely nominal. Um, and that's simply a, a reflection of the power relations between the people running the meeting and, and people from rural areas who've been victimised. Um, I would then argue that a truth commission, even a, a trial, certainly the consultations that most transitional justice processes uh, conduct are instrumentalizations. In a TRC, the victim is a performer. The victim doesn't obviously benefit from the process. Empirically, there's no evidence they do. Um, similarly, in a situation where a trial is not the priority of a victim, the victim is an instrument through which a prosecution occurs. It's not obvious that his participation is anything more than as an instrument of that process. I would say that a representative participation is what we can achieve through victims groups, which gives you solidarity and community and potentially leverage on a national process. Um, but what we should be aiming for is a transformative approach where we enable the agency of victims to create, participate in transitional justice mechanisms and give them the capacity denied to them at the moment to impact on a broader politics. So. This is, I mean, something very much um, in progress, but the idea that a transformative participation can radically change how we think about transitional justice.
Um, yeah, transformative process is, is, as I've said before, not a restitution to marginality and to poverty and exclusion, but a transformation in the broader society that removes the social conditions that led to conflict, what transitional justice has always claimed to be doing in addressing the causes of conflict. Um, such participation can make a transitional justice process itself transformative, I claim. Um, it can be, transitional justice can use the transition as a catalyst for a progressive politics rather than the classic liberalism that fails to address the causes of conflict. Um, so to conclude, um, I've tried to discuss mobilisation as something that can drive a bottom-up transitional justice. These are some more pictures um, of, of various, this is actually uh, a commemoration of the day of the disappeared in, uh, in Kathmandu. Um, transitional justice in Nepal has reflected a global normative approach. It's an elite discourse. Victims play almost no, no role in it. And it's become a sterile discussion between demands for impunity from politicians and demands for accountability from human rights actors. And it's largely irrelevant to the everyday lives of those most affected by the conflict who ha don't have any contribution to the discussion. Um, a legalist approach has put the perpetrator and the violation at the centre of the process and see victims as passive, replicating the subordination that led them to become victims in the first place. And they become the passive recipients of government actions that they have no, no control over. Um, and where marginalisation is the cause of conflict, this has to be an awareness in the process, in the transitional justice process of this. And the normative discourse does nothing to challenge the power relations that get led to conflict. And in Nepal, I believe civil society is part of the problem, not part of the solution. So I've tried to propose some approaches to challenge this normative agenda. First in empiricism, rooted in the everyday lives of those most affected and the increasing of victim participation both in research, consultation and in the TJ process itself and victim mobilisation is one tool um, to advance this agenda. So I mean uh, to, to conclude many millions of dollars have been spent on transitional justice in Nepal um, mostly through international and national human rights actors uh, with, I would say, essentially no result to date. Um, although it has sustained an international and, and local community in a very good style in Kathmandu. Um, and the reason nothing has happened is because there's a fundamental clash between a, the politics, the politicians who have no interest in seeing a process, and the human rights agenda, which is very narrow and very legalistic. Um, and what I'm saying is, if you had a transitional justice process that was from the grassroots, if this money had been used rather than funding endless advocacy reports, had mobilised victims, you would have a structure, you would have something in place that could represent victims, that would already be working on the ground to challenge many of the legacies of violence. And I think this offers a potential recipe for a, a bottom-up transitional justice that can address many of the problems we see with the global transitional justice discourse. Thank you.